Hi, I'm Josh Hammer. And I'm Batia Unger-Sargon. And this is Newsweek's The Debate. We're talking today about the minimum wage. You know, when you think about it from a first perspective, maybe is not the sexiest topic in the world, but I think it actually does speak more broadly to a lot of what's actually going on as far as kind of the current political trends in the country. So, Badia, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you see from your perspective as to kind of how the minimum wage fits into the whole national discussion right now? I disagree. I do think it's a sexy topic. And we're hopefully going to convince you of that with our debate, which is coming up. But (laughs) I do think that this question of the working class in America is newly relevant after having been kind of relegated to the to the background, to the back burner for a really long time. I think that over the past 30 years, you really saw Democrats kind of leaning into the college educated set. While you had Republicans who sort of have never really cared that much about the poor and the working class. And what we're seeing now is sort of a realignment in a way. You're seeing a small group of Republicans talking more about working class Americans, especially working class Americans of all races. And then you're also seeing Joe Biden really kind of have a tight focus on, you know, the have nots. So in a way, this is an issue that is newly important again. So I'm super excited to be talking about whether we should be uh, raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Yeah, no, I know it's an issue that you're v- very passionate about, Badia. Um, you know, sp- speaking personally, I mean, you know, I remember my first job, it was, I was a day camp counselor the summer between eighth and ninth grade. And I, I don't think I was technically making minimum wage, but it was barely over that. Um, now I was not, obviously not a full-time employee. I was, you know, 13 years old living at home or whatever. Um, but, uh, how about yourself? Have you ever had any truly minimum wage jobs? I did. In college, I worked a bunch of minimum wage jobs. I worked in a cafe. I worked in a library. And then after college, I worked in a restaurant. And the restaurant actually paid us a lot less than minimum wage. They paid us $3 an hour, but they did allow us to eat as much bread as we wanted. And so we ate a lot of that bread, Josh. (laughs) Uh, The silver linings. Yes, indeed. So um, look, without further ado, we've got a great debate set up for you today. We've got Pedro Gonzalez, um, who I think, uh, suffice to say, comes from the more populist wing of, of the modern conservative movement. I think that I think Pedro would call that an understatement. Um, uh, he's a great guy, frequent contributor to our Newsweek opinion page, and we're really thrilled to have him on here to represent basically the argument that conservatives and people right of center should kind of get over their aversion to at least considering minimum wage increases. On the other side, kind of giving what I would describe as kind of the more traditional orthodox perspective, um, at least from kind of a libertarian small government perspective on the minimum wage, is uh, Brad Palumbo from the Foundation for Economic Education. And um, Badia, I thought it was a great exchange. What did you think? What I love about putting Pedro and Brad together is that they're both conservatives. And so it's very easy to have a liberal caricatured by conservatives as not caring about spending, not caring about, you know, just let's pay everybody everything. When you have two conservatives, you can really get down into the finer details about how this might work. So I'm super excited about this debate. So with that, we'll be right back after the break. You're listening to The Debate by Newsweek. Welcome back to the debate brought to you by Newsweek. So initially it looked like that uh, massive COVID-19 relief bill that the president signed into law in March was actually going to include a progressive proposal to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Now, that proposal didn't eventually make it in. Uh, Moderate Democrats like uh, Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin voted it down. We're kind of used to seeing this debate among Democrats 
kind of like, you know, the fault line between the sort of more moderate liberals and the progressives. But the thing that's really interesting right now is that it's not only happening on the left. This split over kind of letting the market do its thing versus a more populist, big government point of view that offers the lower and middle classes economic support and security is actually happening among Republicans as well. Isn't that right, Josh? That is totally right. You know, Badia, I was kind of waiting for the minimum wage debate to explode on the right of center. It's kind of downstream of a lot of trends that have happened over the past few years, obviously, this kind of emergence, kind of populist, more nationalist wing of the conservative movement in the Republican Party. So we were really fortunate to host a debate on this exact topic between two people who are eminently qualified and have very, uh, I would say, opposing, uh, intellectually honest and respectable views on this subject. So, Brad, why don't you kind of start us off here? Why don't you kind of summarize your position uh, taking what I would describe as kind of the traditional conservative libertarian approach to the minimum wage. Sure, yeah. And I'll start by saying thanks for having me. I'm glad you guys were able to foster the conversation. And maybe a good place to start is shared goals. I think everyone on this call and everybody listening would agree we want more workers to have higher wages. We want more workers to have jobs. And we want consumers to have lower prices and better products. We all have the same goals. It's a debate over a means to achieve those ends. And I think uh, that the traditional free market economic perspective on the minimum wage is basically true uh, in the sense that the real minimum wage is always zero. The same way if you went to the store tomorrow, Batya, and you uh, say you love Diet Coke and a government law had said Diet Coke now costs $10 a can, you'd buy less Diet Coke. You might still buy some, right, but you would buy less because an arbitrary price floor came in. This is what basic economics teaches us about uh, price floors. And labor is basically, it's complicated, right? But it's a good like any other. Um, and in fact, the wealth of empirical evidence shows job losses from minimum wage. There was just a recent survey by economist David Newmark um, who went through and looked at almost all the empirical research that's been done and found there's still a clear preponderance of evidence showing minimum wage losses. And what he also found, this is the part I find interesting, because progressives particularly want to help, um, though I think we all do, minorities, women, young people, um, immigrants. But a lot of these studies show that minimum wage hikes disproportionately hit uh, marginalized workers the hardest, because the way that labor decisions work, I mean, when you're going to cut somebody from your staff because of a, a wage increase, well, you start at the bottom of the totem pole. And unfortunately, for many reasons, but including historical inequality, a lot of these groups find themselves at the bottom of totem poles. The flip side that I'll also bring up is that this is not just a debate about jobs and wages, though that's kind of the headline, right? It's also a debate about consumers. And so, for example, at McDonald's, a comprehensive study of McDonald's showed that the company responded to, to minimum wage hikes by passing on all the costs to consumers by increased prices. Now, if you care about workers, which I think most progressives and, and conservatives earnestly do, you're not helping anyone by artificially raising nominal wages, but then prices go up and standard of living isn't any better. So I think this is an important conversation to have, but I just don't believe these big government policies can actually help the people we all want to help. Yeah, no, that's great. Thank you for that really, really, really broad, nice kind of overview. So Pedro, you want to dive in and give us your rebuttal? But I think what's actually underlying this debate is this question of whether or not wages and benefits improve for anyone that economic power structures are not designed to make that happen. So this idea that 
wages will rise as sure as the sun if we just like deregulate and cut taxes. And Trump claimed or he touted that under him you had wages for low wage workers rise. But the great irony of that was that actually in the states where you saw wages for, for let's say minimum wage workers, we'll call them that, increase through legislation, the minimum wage. The middle class actually saw its wages remain stagnant because no one helped them. And then you saw that the, the top earners saw their wages increase, of course, in part due to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So I think that that strange paradigm where you have the lowest, uh, lowest income workers seeing their wages increase, the highest income workers seeing their wages increase, and the middle see their wages remain stagnant, shows you that this does not happen on its own. There's this saying uh, James Madison wrote in Federalist 51 that if men were angels, no government would be necessary. And I, I, it's interesting that most conservatives believe that, I think. It's, it's uncontroversial. You need government because human nature being what it is, people will prey upon each other, and that's why we have government, that's why we have laws. What's frustrating is that conservatives don't seem to think that this also applies to economics. That if we just simply get rid of all wage floors and things like that, regulations, that people will just pay each other what's fair. And that there's no uh, control that needs to be imposed on that. I, I think that there's just actually a lot of evidence that says that's not true. Brad brought up a lot of points. Uh, if we can narrow it down and get into them, I guess, one by one, uh, I, we can go from there. Maybe I could briefly just chat about that paradigm because I think it is an interesting point. And I, some of that I, I very much agree with. I'd point out a couple things, though, and that would be that we, I, we should not dismiss the real economic achievements uh, achieved under the Trump administration through a, a combination of traditional conservative economic orthodoxy. Uh, just to rattle a few off, record low Hispanic and black unemployment rates um, actually skyrocketing in new record levels of household median wealth, which is a really important and overlooked statistic, including for families of color. Um, and and one, other, one other point that I think is interesting is I agree with a lot of what Pedro said. And Pedro talked about uh, CEO pay in his op-ed, right? But I look at that and I say, okay, show me the big government cronyism that's creating this, this uh, disparity. For example, Amazon is one of the biggest proponents of the $15 minimum wage. If it was really such a pro-worker, pro-little guy policy, explain to me why the national organizations for small businesses are all saying this will kill us, and the corporate giants are all whispering in Congress's ear and saying, yes, pass this. Uh, so I think that paradigm is important, but I'd flip it on its head. All right. I definitely want Pedro to respond to that Amazon point because it's one of the strongest points that you make. We're going to get to that in a minute. But I, I, I want to push back a little bit, Brad, because um, Pedro posed a question to you that I, I definitely want to hear you answer specifically. You know, since 2009, the minimum wage has not risen above $7.25, which if you factor in inflation, right, means that people are actually making less than they did, you know, in 2009. So, so, so what's the response from that, how do we take care of those workers? How do we signal to them, like you said, something we can all agree on is we care about workers, we care about the working class. Um, yeah. The market clearly failed there, right? How do you respond to that? So I, I don't agree that the market failed because what you're saying is the federal minimum wage has not changed, but actually a very tiny percentage of the labor force earns the federal minimum wage. We're talking about an extremely small, small slice. Um, but also, the federal minimum wage is not the only minimum wage. 
every state has its own minimum wage, or most states, a few have none except the federal minimum wage, and those have changed. So to look just at the federal minimum wage and say it hasn't been changed in decades, well, it's actually been changed in many places all across the country. My argument would be get rid of the federal minimum wage entirely, set it at zero, and then let every state and local locality make their own minimum wage because the cost of living varies so enormously and the average, we all agree that minimum wages can't be zero or $2,000 an hour, right? It has to be relative to the average wage in the area, the cost of living in the area. So to impose one flat federal minimum wage of $15 or of anything really is to force a one size fits all solution on this vast and diverse country. I mean, to do the math, right, as someone at the Foundation for Economic Education where I work, an economist crunched the numbers and found that if imposing a $15 minimum wage in Puerto Rico is the equivalent of imposing a $68 an hour minimum wage in Washington, D.C. Pedro wouldn't support that. Batya wouldn't support Nobody would support that, right? So I say... Forget the federal minimum wage entirely. Leave it all up to states and localities. So, Pedro, I actually really want to get your thoughts on that exact question, but let's do it when we come back here. Once again, you're listening to The Debate, a Newsweek podcast. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Debate, a podcast by Newsweek. Pedro, let's dive right back in there. I thought, you know, as the conservative here who's probably somewhere in the middle between your two positions, I'm personally pretty sympathetic at least to the Romney-Cotton proposal to at least index this thing to inflation more so than a hard $15 number. Um, why don't you respond to Brad's points about how this isn't just a local issue? Because I, I do find that kind of persuasive. I mean, you look at West Virginia. I mean, the median the, the median wage in the state of West Virginia is like 15 and a half, 16 bucks, right? I mean, it's barely above what the uh, what the federal minimum wage proposal from some on the left would be. So I'd just, just be curious for your response to that. So there are two things. I actually don't disagree with Brad. Uh, I'm not going to die... And I don't think anyone should die on the $15 hill, and it, which it, ironically, that's actually what progressives did, like Bernie Sanders and AOC, all of these, you know, super woke, uh, woke pro-worker people. They basically just took their their toys and went home. When people like Joe Manchin pushed back and said, "Well, how about a $10 or an $11 minimum wage?" Or you know, you've got Mitt Romney and Tom Cotton and even Josh Hawley. Josh Hawley has proposed a program that would be uh, a refundable tax credit. Uh, for workers earning less than sixteen fifty an hour, uh, so I, I actually agree that there is there's more than one one way to do this, and that probably the the wisest way I think would be a fixing it to inflation, uh, and then getting getting the, the this to be a national issue that, that this needs to happen everywhere. Uh, to the point about whether or not it would help uh, that many people. There are a lot of studies, the Economic Policy Institute for one, uh, that show that that increasing the minimum wage does not just help the people that are actually earning a minimum wage. It actually raises wages for people that are earning just above it. So it, it lifts not just one boat, but several boats. And to the question of, well, this has a kind of devastating impact on, let's say, teenagers, for example, well, that's not necessarily true. If you look at this study published in 2017 by the, I think it's the Massachusetts Budgetary Committee. What they found is that uh, despite the minimum wage being doubled over a few years, teen unemployment is at a historic low. It's at the lowest it's been since the 90s. Uh, and there's actually a lot of evidence to the contrary of the point that it results in a widespread job loss. Um, there was a study published by a professor at University of Massachusetts, 
His name is uh, his name is Aaron Dubay, and he prepared this study for the for her uh, Her Majesty's Treasury. And what he found is that actually the the job losses are minimal and fleeting, and that in fact the gains are made up later on uh, as productivity improves and growth improves. So again, uh, there's I think there's a lot of points to address here, um, but I think that there is a kind of attitude that conservative economics are, they, they are kind of axiomatic. If you do this, this will happen. But that's just not true. Or at least there's a lot of evidence that casts doubt on that. It's funny that you mentioned Aaron Dubay. I actually went to the University of Massachusetts Amherst um, and studied in the economics department for my undergraduate. Fun fact about UMass Amherst, it has the sole distinction of being the only Marxist economics department, fully Marxist, their words, not mine, uh, in America. So I guess I would just comment on EPI also being a liberal-leaning think tank. And I have, trust me, I cite figures from conservative and libertarian think tanks all the time. Think tanks are fine. But let's look at the closest thing we have to nonpartisan referee, the Congressional Budget Office. Um, they found 900,000 people have their wages risen above the poverty line, 1.4 million lose their jobs. And we see higher consumer prices. Uh, and so to me, I, I would just push back on the claim. I think. The, the core of the evidence is against this position. Um, so that, that's just what I would add to that point. Well, I'll, I'll respond by saying Marx was actually a massive proponent of free trade and <laughs> vehemently opposed to protectionism because he viewed free trade or I guess free market economics as kind of accelerating the brutality of capitalism that would kind of naturally result in a socializing process and or I guess in his words that it would produce the grave diggers of the bourgeoisie so what I'm saying is, is that just because something is Marxist uh, or capitalist, on the other hand, doesn't mean it's necessarily wrong. Observations can be true regardless of the person that's making the observation. If the preponderance, preponderance of the evidence points a certain direction, then it's probably true. Um, I, cite I, agree. I agree with that. EPI I certainly agree with I that. I cite restaurant food pricing from 1978 to 2015. They found that a 10% increase in the minimum wage only accounts for about a 0.36% increase in prices. So it's like the difference between a $10 burger and a $10 and five cent burger. So again, you're not wrong that there are trade-offs for any policy. There certainly are. Uh, there, I, I can't think of a single policy where there aren't trade-offs, but I just think that raising the minimum wage, whether we do it the way that you pointed to, which is doing this on a kind of like letting, uh, letting this happen on a, on a kind of small scale, instead of a flat federal imposition of a $15 uh, wage. Um, I think that the trade-offs are ultimately worth it in the end. And if that means that you're paying a tiny bit more for something like a burger, then it's worth it because the social costs of this are worth it in my mind. There is a large body of high quality academic scholarship that shows that when, when people are making more money, like low wage uh, income people especially, you have a reduction in things like unwanted pregnancies. You have a reduction in child abuse. You have more consumer spending. Uh, these, I think in, in the end, we're talking about something that's worth it on the balance. I want you to address that kind of the social kind of moral question. I mean, I'm wondering if you don't look at the working class in America today and feel that it's been gutted, that um, you know things are actually really bad, that these communities are failing, that offshoring of production has resulted in you know the decimation of, to some extent, the American dream. Do you not agree with that, or do you agree with it and think that there should be another way of sort of trying to address it? And if so, what is that way? 
I think that narrative is overstated, but has some truth to it. I think it's it's mm-hmm. definitely exaggerated. If you break down the data, a lot of times people will talk about wages being flat for decades, and they're not. They're looking at wages, but they're not looking at purchasing power, and they're not looking at non-wage benefits, both of which have risen drastically. Um, so when we talk about the standard of living having increased for workers. I think it certainly has. I mean, workers 30 years ago didn't have iPhones and access to inexpensive clothing and cars and all sorts of things that have improved people's lives. Um, And so I think I do have somewhat more of an optimistic narrative there. I'm not saying, though, that there aren't serious problems and plights facing the working class. There are. But a lot of those problems come back to... um, big government cronyism. We don't have a free market system. In a free market system, workers' wages do rise on their own through competition for labor. But we don't have a free market system. We have a rigged market with big government subsidies and carve-outs and regulatory capture. So I'm happy to talk about ways to help the working class. So let's let's dive in on that in the next segment here, um, because uh, it seems to me that looking back on some of the free market literature, I mean, even Adam Smith actually spoke of the need for strong labor unions, strong labor force, the need for countervailing forces in the labor market. But once again, you're listening to The Debate, a Newsweek podcast. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Newsweek's The Debate. So. A lot of discussion here about whether government has gone too involved in the labor market, whether there's cronyism, whether there's subsidization of things that should not be subsidized, things of that nature. But Pedro, I, I, I would think that uh, from your perspective, you know, Michael Lind, the prolific essayist uh, at Tablet, American Compass, a lot of other places, likes to go back and cite a lot of kind of the kind of first principles level free market literature, the Adam Smiths of the world, to actually say that like even these guys did believe in the need for a robust labor market. They thought that countervailing forces were necessary and that for wages to be appropriately set, there had to be competing uh, forces to try and get supply and demand right in kind of orthodox economic theory. I, I'd be kind of curious how you approach that and how you would respond to that point. Smith said that uh, that men, referring specifically to businessmen, but also politicians, that, that they never get together so much for fun, but to conspire against the public. And so I, you can call this crony capitalism or whatever, but, but I think what Smith was actually making a statement about human nature, that, that uh, in this, this idea that if we just deregulate and cut taxes and let the free market do its thing, you know, the invisible hand takes over, that, that just never happened in terms of wages. I, I think that there are three probably sure ways of, of raising worker wages, the minimum wage, unions, and tariffs. It's kind of interesting. The argument for tariffs is actually kind of similar to the argument for the minimum wage in terms of why it helps workers and why it's bad uh, if you're against tariffs and the minimum wage. It's, it's, it's interesting. There was an article in Barron's actually about this uh, maybe a year or two ago. But uh, So let's look at Norway and Denmark. Those are countries where you don't have a federal minimum wage because you don't need one. There are robust unions that are uh, there that are capable of negotiating uh, for basically industry set minimum wages for workers. Also, workers can strike more easily in countries like Denmark because they have universal health insurance and the state will pick up the tab for like unemployment benefits. So, and and, uh, the state only steps in when negotiations between employer and employee break down. In the United States, at least conservatives uh, don't like unionization and don't like the minimum wage. And they don't like to legislate in a way that helps workers in a, in a positive sense. So our answer is like tax cutting. But when we look at, for example, the, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, when we cut taxes, what happened? Uh, yeah, some of it 
uh, inc resulted in, in like marginal wage increases for workers, but uh, disproportionately redounded to the benefit of the people that are actually accelerating jobs. It actually incentivized uh, offshoring. And with the savings from those tax cuts, did companies reinvest in worker wages? No, actually, they, they went on uh, stock buyback sprees. So wages don't rise for anyone who doesn't fight for them. And I, I, I think that uh, Smith is right about this. Like, you, you need something like a union, and really all a union is is, is worker advocacy. It's not going to happen on its own. And I think the, the unionization question for the United States is, is kind of like beyond the pale because uh, unions have been on decline for a long time. I think they're going to stay on decline, unfortunately. And the only unions that really have a lot of power in this country are like the, the awful public sector unions that I think are, are uh, actually really terrible. Brad, sorry to cut you off, Pedro, but just for, for sake of time here, Brad, I'd be curious how you respond because it seems like everyone is on the same page on public sector unions. I mean, for, you know, for God's sake, FDR spoke out against them, right? Um have conservatives, have people on the right of center made a mistake by not even trying to get in the game as far as private sector labor unions are concerned or not so much? Yeah, look, I'm not anti-union in terms of private voluntary unions. Uh, I agree with Pedro that that labor has to negotiate for higher wages. That's how the free market does raise wages um, is by being employers don't give out bonuses because they're nice. They give it because if they don't, the workers will leave and go somewhere else that can make more money by stealing them away. Um so I'm not anti-union. I'm anti-coerced union, though. So, for example, uh, union membership isn't a choice in many industries. Uh, Democrats are actively trying to repeal right-to-work laws. I should not be forced to pay any for form of dues or be a member um, to a union because unions are inherently political bodies. So I'm not opposed to unions. I'm opposed to coercive unions and overpowerful unions. And that's where I think the debate is really at right now. Pedro, I want to give you a chance to respond to one of Brad's really strong points, I thought, in his piece. Amazon raised pay for its workers, the floor, to $15 an hour a couple years ago. Um, now what you see, though, is you see them pushing for the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. And, and Brad made the really strong point that they're doing this, you know, not because they care so much about everybody who doesn't work at Amazon. They're doing it because they know it's going to put their competition out of business. They know the mom and pops can't afford to pay $15 an hour. And so Amazon's dream is that, you know, this you know, federal minimum wage will pass and then they will have no competition, essentially. I want to give you a chance to respond to that. I think that it's difficult to know what Amazon is actually thinking. This could be like a kind of token gesture to the woke crowd. Uh, please, you know, don't burn down our warehouses. We're, <laughs> we're doing things to help you. On the other hand, Amazon is not pro-labor because they oppose unionization. They're, it's ironically, they're, they're not allowing their, they're, they want to prevent their employees by voting uh, by mail so that they can vote to unionize, which is something that they actually had a huge problem with Republicans contesting the election on the basis of uh, vote by mail fraud. I'm not convinced that a scheduled increase, even to $15 an hour, would have the devastating effects on the economy that I think a lot of conservatives think it would. So as far as Amazon pushing the 15 because of some nefarious uh, plan to like wipe out small business, um, I don't necessarily see it that way. I hate to defend Amazon. Uh, <laughs> I'm someone who's, I'm someone who's defended like actually breaking up Amazon and confiscating Jeff Bezos as well. Uh, but I think, again, uh, we're talking about trade-offs at the end of the day. What Maybe one of those trade-offs is defending Amazon. But, for example, like the, the CEO report, right? Brad is, Brad is right. It says that it would wipe out something like two, 2 million jobs, I think, at most, which some people have pushed back and said that's, that's kind of a – that's probably inflated. 
Um, but it also states that 17 million people currently making the minimum wage would see their wages rise. 10 million people making just above the minimum wage would see their wages rise by 2025. The CBO actually agrees with uh, EPI and a bunch of other institutions that say that raising the minimum wage would reduce uh, federal expenditures on things like food stamps. Uh, it, it would reduce federal expenditures on basically the social safety net because when people are earning more money, well, they're not living on like SNAP. We're talking about trade-offs. Why don't we kind of just get some closing thoughts here? And it would be great if both of you could kind of frame this as part of your views of kind of where the broader right of center movement is, what lessons it has learned, what lessons it has not learned, and what less and where it's going. Because I think you have very, very, very interesting and pretty diametrically opposed viewpoints. Uh, if I can oversimplify here on uh, on these questions, so Brad, why don't you yeah. why, why don't you kick us off? Well, I think the the wake up call for right of center America has been that there's a populist sentiment and people feel like they've been screwed over and let down um, by the elite, by the establishment. And the question is not whether that is true, because I think it is, but how to respond to it. So I got some flack for saying that free market uh, economics can be populist, but I would focus right on not suddenly embracing progressive or Marxist economic policies, um, but Finally, what the problem with Republicans is not that they've been free market ideologues. It's that they've been swamp creatures who give big business subsidies and special regulations uh, to protect, you know, the, whoever has the most lobbyists. So I think we need a, a second Tea Party, frankly, channeling that populist sentiment into grassroots free market energy to take on the entrenched elite of big business colluding with big government, because that's the problem. The problem is not enough that we don't have enough government. Um, I, I, and we could have a whole other debate about all these other topics, but that's where I'm coming at um, and w what I see as the best path forward. Yeah, you know, as someone who kind of came of age in this movement, I mean, it really was not that long ago that, you know, uh, Mike Lee, for instance, someone for whom I worked after my first year of law school summer, was pushing kind of defund the Export-Import Bank as like a prototypical policy of a purported libertarian populism, so to speak. But, Pedro, I take it that you disagree with that. I mean, from your perspective, I would imagine that the election of Trump suggests that we should that we should continue going in a totally different direction. Right. Well, I think this, there's a kind of paradox, right? Even if you're someone who supports the free market uh, or thinks that this, this is a kind of possibility, uh, the only way to, I guess, shrink the size of the federal government would be to do it through populism. You would need some kind of movement that's motivated by mass discontent to basically exercise the power of the state in a kind of reverse FDR way. In the same way that FDR you know, exploded the size of federal government, you would need someone who's a kind of Trumpian populist leader to shrink it. Uh, and, and I think also the point that what we're witnessing is currently capitalism, it's, it's a kind of a mis uh, it's a misidentification of the problem. Because when you look around enough, you start to realize, I don't think we're talking about crony capitalism anymore. This seems to be the actual system itself. And because when you say crony capitalism, it's like you're identifying an aberration in an otherwise good system, like a glitch in the matrix, right? But that is the system itself. Like this is decades of policy. Uh, th this has all been by choice. Like lawmakers have done this on purpose for decades to, to basically screw over hardworking middle Americans, right? Uh, at the expense of various interest groups. And that is that is the world we live in. It's not like the free market is kind of humming along, but they're like, you know, it hits hiccups every now and again. Like this is the world we live in. And I think that even if you're someone like a libertarian, like I actually like the libertarians at the Mises Institute, and they, we seem to agree on this, that, the, that we're both going in the same direction but you, we need a kind of new philosophy on, on uh, the, how to get there, I guess. Um, a philosophy that I think a lot of free market people are kind of uncomfortable with, but 
hopefully are coming around to. Thank you both so much, Pedro, Brad. This was an absolute pleasure, and we'll have to have you back on because there's a lot more to talk about. Yeah, thank you so much. We'll have to do tariffs next time. (laughs) Thank you so much, guys. You're listening to The Debate by Newsweek. So welcome back to Newsweek's The Debate. So, Badia, we just heard what I thought was a really interesting and really great exchange here between two people who know their stuff, who know their talking points, who know their theory, but still come out seeing this issue, among other issues, totally separately. So how how did it go from your perspective? Okay, so as a lefty, there's, it's so exciting to hear a guy who's so solidly on the conservative right saying so many things that are like, you know, mother's milk to me, like, you know, that we need to be helping the working class, we need to be building them up, the government needs to be invested in failing communities, you know, all of this stuff that I tend to feel, you know, that for, you know, decades, we're like, why is nobody talking about this? And that, you know, that the the opposite of that free market point of view, that's been affiliated with the right for so long, it's really cool to see this populism that really did start with Trump gaining legs on the right so that there's so much that we can identify as things that I agree with. What what do you think? Yeah, this debate is so interesting to me. It's obviously, as we said at the outset, it's downstream, right, of a lot of kind of broader intellectual trends that have kind of emerged in 2015, 2016, and kind of transpired since then. There's a sense, look, I mean, I majored in economics in college. I worked at an economic consulting firm. I went to University of Chicago for law school because of its law and economics intellectual curriculum. I, I, I know what neoclassical economics looks like on a, on a chalkboard. I, I, I am familiar with Ricardian comparative advantage and things like that, uh-huh. okay? The, what's interesting about my fellow righties or fellow conservatives is that a lot of people are kind of reawakening to the notion that market efficiency is not necessarily the be-all, end-all of a just and wholesome politics. Um, that's kind of this overarching debate, right, between kind of more traditional kind of libertarian-leaning individual rights, individual-centric thought, and kind of a more kind of common good-oriented, nationalist-oriented approach. And it's, it's just really interesting to see. The minimum wage debate in particular, I mean, look, I, I, I you know, Pedro contests some of the economic literature here, but I don't think a lot of people contest that raising minimum wage would result in job loss. The question, I think, from my perspective, is more interesting in that are there countervailing effects, both cultural and indeed economic, as far as wage itself and quality of life that would that would offset that. So really just fascinating stuff here. Um, I fear that Brad is fighting a bit of an uphill battle of sorts uh, amidst prevailing uh, currents on the right. Um, and I, 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 I got to push back on that. There's like four guys in your camp, right? There's Romney, Rubio, Holly, and Cotton sometimes, right? Everyone else is still very much in the Brad side of things. Well, I don't, I actually don't think that's right. Um, 90, 95 or 96 senators last year ended up supporting Tom Cotton's bill to support a kind of Orin like industrial policy as far as semiconductors are concerned. Um, there's, there's lots of stuff like that in the current. I mean, I don't think anyone supports like quote unquote free trade with China, which itself is obviously a bit of an oxymoron. So there's, there's all sorts of kind of neoliberal platitudes that I think are kind of on their deathbed, even on the American right. The minimum wage in particular, though, I agree with you. The minimum wage in particular, I don't see becoming uh, a, a sensation overnight. And even my, even personally myself as someone who is, uh, you know, very much kind of a, a two cheers for capitalism, not necessarily a full three cheers for capitalism guy. I, I am not fully on board with uh, the minimum wage rhetoric. So I, 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 I hear you. I think this one might be a bit of a lagging indicator, but that was that was great. It seems to me that this push for economic populism on the right 
is very much led by, as Pedro was putting it, a kind of understanding of social catastrophe that's happening across the board. And that is something you don't see on the left, right? So even on the left where, you know, there are claims to care about the working class, the middle class, what happened to the American dream, it's very much focused on the economic piece of things and on what role should the government have, you know, in 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 helping boost these communities from an economic point of view and very little acknowledgement about the social upheaval and costs the loss of religion, the loss of communities, the loss of civic capital, um, if you if you will. So so I, I think that that's really interesting. You're seeing the social questions leading the economic questions on the right. And I would love to see more of the economic questions leading a social revival on the left. That's maybe could be our next debate. Well, I think so. I mean, one one possible interesting place to start obviously with the border crisis is immigration, maybe the possible revival of a pro-labor wing of the Democratic Party. But We'll have to save that for some for some future dialogues. But for now, this was this was really great, I thought. And we're just we're just so thankful to Brad and Pedro for joining us. And we can't wait to have you next time on Newsweek's The Debate. See you next time.